Appendix A, Sections 9 through 17 of Principles of Economics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. Principles of Economics by Alfred Marshall. Appendix A, Sections 9 through 17. The Growth of Free Industry and Enterprise. Section 9. The countries which took the lead in the new maritime adventure were those of the Spanish peninsula. It seemed for a time that though the leadership of the world, having settled first in the most easterly peninsula of the Mediterranean, and thence moved to the middle peninsula, would settle again in that westerly peninsula which belonged both to the Mediterranean and the Atlantic but the power of industry had by this time become sufficient to sustain wealth and civilization in a northern climate. Spain and Portugal could not hold their own for long against the more sustained energy and the more generous spirit of the northern people. The early history of the people of the Netherlands is indeed a brilliant romance. Founding themselves on fishing and weaving, they built up a noble fabric of art and literature, of science and government. But Spain set herself to crush out the rising spirit of freedom, as Persia had done before. And as Persia strangled Ionia, but only raised yet higher the spirit of Greece proper, so the Austro-Spanish Empire subdued the Belgian Netherlands, but only intensified the patriotism and energy of the Dutch Netherlands and England. Holland suffered from England's jealousy of her commerce, but still more from the restless military ambition of France. It soon became clear that Holland was defending the freedom of Europe against French aggression. But at a critical time in her history she was deprived of the aid she might reasonably have expected from Protestant England, and though from 1688 onwards that aid was liberally given, her bravest and most generous sons had then already perished on the battlefield, and she was overburdened with debt. She has fallen into the background, but Englishmen above all others are bound to acknowledge what she did, and what more she might have done for freedom and enterprise. France and England were thus left to contend for the empire of the ocean. France had greater natural resources than any other northern country and more of the spirit of the new age than any southern country, and she was for some time the greatest power in the world. But she squandered in perpetual wars her wealth, and the blood of the best of those citizens whom she had not already driven away by religious persecution. The progress of enlightenment brought with it no generosity on the part of the ruling class towards the ruled, and no wisdom in expenditure. From revolutionary America came the chief impulse towards a rising of the oppressed French people against their rulers. But the French were strikingly wanting in that self-controlling freedom which had distinguished the American colonists. Their energy and courage was manifested again in the great Napoleonic Wars. But their ambition overleaped itself, and ultimately left to England the leadership of enterprise on the ocean. Thus the industrial problems of the new world are being worked out under the direct influence 
and to some extent those of the old world, are under the indirect influence of the English character. We may then return to trace with somewhat more detail the growth of free enterprise in England. Section 10 England's geographical position caused her to be peopled by the strongest members of the strongest races of northern Europe. A process of natural selection brought to her shores those members of each successive migratory wave who were most daring and self-reliant. Her climate is better adapted to sustain energy than any other in the northern hemisphere. She is divided by no high hills, and no part of her territory is more than twenty miles from navigable water, and thus there was no material hindrance to freedom of intercourse between her different parts. While the strength and wise policy of the Norman and Plantagenet kings prevented artificial barriers from being raised by local magnates. As the part which Rome played in history is chiefly due to her having combined the military strength of a great empire with the enterprise and fixedness of purpose of an oligarchy residing in one city, so England owes her greatness to her combining, as Holland had done on a smaller scale before, much of the free temper of the medieval city with the strength and broad basis of a nation. The towns of England had been less distinguished than those of other lands, but she assimilated them more easily than any other country did, and so gained in the long run most from them. The custom of primogeniture inclined the younger sons of noble families to seek their own fortunes, and having no special caste privileges, they mixed readily with the common people. This fusion of different ranks tended to make politics business-like, while it warmed the veins of business adventure with the generous daring and romantic aspirations of noble blood. Resolute on the one hand in resistance to tyranny, and on the other in submission to authority when it is justified by their reason, the English have made many revolutions, but none without a definite purpose. While reforming the Constitution, they have abided by the law. They alone, unless we accept the Dutch, have known how to combine order and freedom. They alone have united a thorough reverence for the past with the power of living for the future, rather than in the past. But the strength of character which in later times made England the leader of manufacturing progress showed itself at first chiefly in politics, in war, and in agriculture. The English archer was the forerunner of the English artisan. He had the same pride in the superiority of his food and his physique over those of his continental rivals. He had the same indomitable perseverance in acquiring perfect command over the use of his hands the same free independence and the same power of self-control and of rising to emergencies, the same habit of indulging his humors when the occasion was fit, but when a crisis arose of preserving discipline even in the face of hardship and misfortune. But the industrial faculties of Englishmen remain latent for a long time. They had not inherited much acquaintance with nor much care for the comforts and luxuries of civilization. In manufactures of all kinds they lagged behind the Latin countries, 
Italy, France, and Spain, as well as the free cities of Northern Europe. Gradually the wealthier classes got some taste for imported luxuries, and England's trade slowly increased. But there was for a long time no sign on the surface of her future commerce. That indeed is the product of her special circumstances as much as, if not more than, of any natural bias of her people. They had not originally, and they have not now, that special liking for dealing and bargaining, nor for the more abstract side of financial business, which is found among the Jews, the Italians, the Greeks, and the Armenians. Trade with them has always taken the form of action rather than of maneuvering and speculative combination. Even now the subtlest financial speculation on the London Stock Exchange is done chiefly by those races which have inherited the same aptitude for trading which the English have for action. The qualities which have caused England in later times under different circumstances to explore the world and to make goods and carry them for other countries caused her even in the Middle Ages to pioneer the modern organization of agriculture, and thus to set the model after which most other modern business is being molded. She took the lead in converting labor dues into money payments, a change which much increased the power of everyone to steer his course in life according to his own free choice. For good and for evil the people were set free to exchange away their rights in the land and their obligations to it. The relaxation of the bonds of custom was hastened alike by the great rise of real wages, which followed the Black Death in the fourteenth century, and by the great fall of real wages which, in the sixteenth century, resulted from the depreciation of silver, the debasement of coin, the appropriation of the revenues of the monasteries to the purposes of court extravagance and lastly by the extension of sheep farming, which set many workers adrift from their old homes, and lowered the real incomes and altered the mode of life of those who remained. The movement was further extended by the growth of the royal power in the hands of the Tudors, which put an end to private war, and rendered useless the bands of retainers which the barons and landed gentry had kept together. The habit of leaving real property to the eldest son and distributing personal property among all the members of the family, on the one hand increased the size of landed properties, and on the other narrowed the capital which the owners of land had at their own command for working it. These causes tended to establish the relation of landlord and tenant in England, while the foreign demand for English work and the English demand for foreign luxuries led, especially in the sixteenth century, to the concentration of many holdings into large sheep-runs worked by capitalist farmers. That is, there was a great increase in the number of farmers who undertook the management and risks of agriculture, supplying some capital of their own, but borrowing the land for a definite yearly payment and hiring labor for wages. In like manner, as later on, the new order of English businessmen undertook the management and the risks of manufacture, supplying some capital of their own, but borrowing the rest on interest, and hiring labor for wages. Free enterprise grew fast and fiercely, and it was one-sided in its action and cruel to the poor. 
but it remains true that the English large farm, arable and pastoral, worked with borrowed capital, was the forerunner of the English factory, in the same way as English archery was the forerunner of the skill of the English artisan. Section 11 Meanwhile the English character was deepening. The natural gravity and intrepidity of the stern races that had settled on the shores of England inclined them to embrace the doctrine of the Reformation, and these reacted on their habits of life, and gave a tone to their industry. Man was, as it were, ushered straight into the presence of his Creator, with no human intermediary and now for the first time large numbers of rude and uncultured people yearned toward the mysteries of absolute spiritual freedom. The isolation of each person's religious responsibility from that of his fellows, rightly understood, was a necessary condition for the highest spiritual progress. But the notion was new to the world. It was bare and naked, not yet overgrown with pleasant instincts and even in kindly natures individuality showed itself with a hard sharpness of outline, while the coarser natures became self-conscious and egotistic. Among the Puritans especially, the eagerness to give logical definiteness and precision to their religious creed was an absorbing passion, hostile to all lighter thoughts and lighter amusements. When occasion arose when they could take combined action which was made irresistible by their resolute will, but they took little joy in society. They shunned public amusements, and preferred the quieter relaxations of home life, and, it must be confessed, some of them took an attitude hostile to art. The first growth of strength had then something in it that was rude and ill-mannered, but that strength was required for the next stage upwards. It needed to be purified and softened by much tribulation. It needed to become less self-assertive without becoming weaker, before new instincts could grow up around it to revive in a higher form what was most beautiful and most solid in the old collective tendencies. It intensified the affections of the family, the richest and fullest of earthly feelings. Perhaps there never has been before any material of texture, at once so strong and so fine with which to build up a noble fabric of social life. Holland and other countries shared with England the great ordeal which was thus opened by the spiritual upheaval that closed the Middle Ages. But from many points of view, and especially from that of the economist, England's experiences were the most instructive and the most thorough, and were typical of all the rest. England led the way in the modern evolution of industry and enterprise by free and self-determining energy and will. Section 12 England's industrial and commercial characteristics were intensified by the fact that many of those who had adopted the new doctrines in other countries sought on her shores a safe asylum from religious persecution. By a sort of natural selection, those of the French and Flemings, and others whose character was most akin to the English, and who had been led by that character to study thoroughness of work in the manufacturing arts, came to mingle with them, and to teach them those arts for which their character had all along fitted them. During the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, the court and the upper classes remained more or less frivolous and licentious, 
but the middle class and some parts of the working class adopted a severe view of life. They took little delight in amusements that interrupted work, and they had a high standard as to those material comforts which could be obtained only by unremitting hard work. They strove to produce things that had a solid and lasting utility, rather than those that suited only for the purposes of festivities and ostentation. The tendency, when once it had set in, was promoted by the climate, for though not very severe, it is specially unsuited to the lighter amusements, and the clothing, house-room, and other requisites for a comfortable existence in it are of a specially expensive character. These were the conditions under which the modern industrial life of England was developed. The desire for material comforts tends towards a ceaseless straining to extract from every week the greatest amount of work that can be got out of it. The firm resolution to submit every action to the deliberate judgment of the reason tends to make everyone constantly ask himself whether he could not improve his position by changing his business, or by changing his method of doing it. And lastly, complete political freedom and security enables everyone to adjust his conduct as he has decided that it is in his interest to do, and fearlessly to commit his person and his property to new and distant undertakings. In short, the same causes which have enabled England and her colonies to set the tone of modern politics have made them also set the tone of modern business. The same qualities which gave them political freedom gave them also free enterprise in industry and commerce. Section 13 Freedom of industry and enterprise, so far as its action reaches, tends to cause everyone to seek that employment of his labor and capital in which he can turn them to the best advantage, and this again leads him to try to obtain a special skill and facility in some particular task, by which he may earn the means of purchasing what he himself wants, and hence results a complex industrial organization with much subtle division of labor. Some sort of division of labor is indeed sure to grow up in any civilization that has held together for a long while, however primitive its form. Even in very backward countries we find highly specialized trades, but we do not find the work within each trade so divided up that the planning and arrangement of the business, its management and its risks, are borne by one set of people while the manual work required for it is done by hired labor. This form of division of labor is at once characteristic of the modern world generally, and of the English race in particular. It may be merely a passing phase in man's development. It may be swept away by the further growth of that free enterprise which has called it into existence. But for the present it stands out for good and for evil as the chief fact in the form of modern civilization, the kernel of the modern economic problem. The most vital changes hitherto introduced into industrial life center around this growth of business undertakers. We have already seen how the undertaker made his appearance at an early stage in England's agriculture. The farmer borrowed land from his landlord, and hired the necessary labor, 
being himself responsible for the management and risks of the business. The selection of farmers has not indeed been governed by perfectly free competition, but it has been restricted to a certain extent by inheritance and by other influences, which have often caused the leadership of agricultural industry to fall into the hands of people who have had no special talent for it. But England is the only country in which any considerable play has been given to natural selection. The agricultural systems of the continent have allowed the accident of birth to determine the part which every man should take in cultivating land, or controlling its cultivation. The greater energy and elasticity obtained by even this narrow play of selection in England has been sufficient to put English agriculture in advance of all others, and has enabled it to obtain a much larger produce than is got by an equal amount of labor from similar soils in any other country of Europe. But the natural selection of the fittest to undertake, to organize, and to manage has much greater scope in manufacture. The tendency to the growth of undertakers in manufactures had set in before the great development of England's foreign trade. In fact, traces of it are to be found in the woolen manufacturer in the fifteenth century. But the opening up of large markets in new countries gave a great stimulus to the movement, both directly and through its influence on the localization of industry, that is, the concentration of particular branches of production in certain localities. The records of medieval fairs and wandering merchants shows that there were many things, each of which was made in only one or two places, and thence distributed north and south, east and west, over the whole of Europe. But the wares whose production was localized, and which traveled far, were almost always of high price and small bulk. The cheaper and heavier goods were supplied by each district for itself. In the colonies of the New World, however, people had not always the leisure to provide manufactures for themselves, and they were often not allowed to make even those which they could have made. For though England's treatment of her colonies was more liberal than that of any other country, she thought that the expense which she incurred on their behalf justified her in compelling them to buy nearly all kinds of manufactures from herself. There was also a large demand for simple goods to be sold in India and to savage races. These causes led to the localization of much of the heavier manufacturing work. In work which requires the highly trained skill and delicate fancy of the operative, organization is sometimes of secondary importance. But the power of organizing great numbers of people gives an irresistible advantage when there is a demand for whole ship cargoes of goods of a few simple patterns. Thus localization and the growth of the system of capitalist undertakers were two parallel movements, due to the same general cause, and each of them promoting the advance of the other. The factory system and the use of expensive appliances in manufacture came at a later stage. They are commonly supposed to be the origin of the power which undertakers wield in English industry and no doubt they increased it. But it had shown itself clearly before their influence was felt. At the time of the French Revolution there was not a very great deal of capital invested in machinery, whether driven by water or steam power. The factories were not large, and there were not many of them. 
but nearly all the textile work of the country was then done on a system of contracts. This industry was controlled by a comparatively small number of undertakers who set themselves to find out what, where, and when it was most advantageous to buy and to sell, and what things it was most profitable to have made. They then let out contracts for making these things to a great number of people scattered over the country. The undertakers generally supplied the raw material, and sometimes even the simple implements that were used. Those who took the contract executed it by the labor of themselves and their families, and sometimes, but not always, by that of a few assistants. As time went on, the progress of mechanical invention caused the workers to be gathered more and more into small factories in the neighborhood of water power, and when steam came to be substituted for water power, then into larger factories in great towns. Thus the great undertakers who bore the chief risks of manufacturing, without directly managing and superintending, began to give way to wealthy employers, who conducted the whole business of manufacturing on a large scale. New factories attracted the attention of the most careless observer, and this last movement was not liable to be overlooked by those who were not actually engaged in the trade, as the preceding movement had been. Thus, at length, general attention was called to the great change in the organization of industry which had long been going on, and it was seen that the system of small businesses controlled by the workers themselves was being displaced by the system of large businesses controlled by the specialized ability of capitalist undertakers. The change would have worked itself out very much as it has done, even if there had been no factories, and it will go on working itself out even if the retail distribution of force by electric or other agencies should cause part of the work that is now done in factories to be taken to the home of the workers. Section 14 The new movement, both in its earlier and later forms, has tended constantly to relax the bonds that used to bind nearly every one to live in the parish in which he was born and it developed free markets for labor, which invited people to come and take their chance at finding employment. And in consequence of this change, the causes that determine the value of labor began to take a new character. Up to the 18th century, manufacturing labor had been hired, as a rule, retail, though a large and fluid labor class, which could be hired wholesale, had played a considerable part in the industrial history of particular places on the continent, and in England before then. In that century the rule was reversed, at least for England, and the price of labor ceased to be dominated by custom, or by bargaining in small markets. During the last hundred years it had even more and more been determined by the circumstances of supply and demand over a large area a town, a country, or the whole world. The new organization of industry added vastly to the efficiency of production, for it went far toward securing that each man's labor should be devoted to just the highest kind of work which he was capable of performing well, and that his work should be ably directed and supplied with the best mechanical and other assistance that wealth and the knowledge of the age could afford. But it brought with it great evils, which of these evils was avoidable, we cannot tell, for just when the change was moving most quickly, England was stricken by a combination of calamities almost unparalleled in history. They were the cause of a great part, it is impossible to say, 
of how great a part, of the sufferings that are commonly ascribed to the sudden outbreak of unrestrained competition. The loss of her great colonies was quickly followed by the Great French War, which cost her more than the total value of the accumulated wealth she had at its commencement. An unprecedented series of bad harvests made bread fearfully dear, and worse than all, a method of administration of the poor law was adopted which undermined the independence and vigor of the people. The first part of the last century therefore saw free enterprise establishing itself in England under favorable circumstances, its evils being intensified and its beneficial influences being hindered by external misfortunes. Section 15 the trade customs and the guild regulations by which the weak had been defended in past times were unsuitable to the new industry. In some places they were abandoned by common consent. In others they were successfully upheld for a time. But it was a fatal success, for the new industry, incapable of flourishing under the old bonds, left those places for others where it could be more free. Then the workers turned to the government for the enforcement of the old laws of Parliament prescribing the way in which the trade should be carried on, and even for the revival of the regulation of prices and wages by justices of the peace. These efforts could not but fail. The old regulations had been the expression of the social, moral, and economic ideas of the time. They had been felt out rather than thought out. They were the most instinctive results of the experience of generations of men who had lived and died under almost unchanged economic conditions. In the new age, changes came so rapidly that there was no time for this. Each man had to do what was right in his own eyes, but with little guidance from the experience of past times. Those who endeavored to cling to old traditions were quickly supplanted. The new race of undertakers consisted chiefly of those who had made their own fortunes, strong, ready, enterprising men, who, looking at the success obtained by their own energies, were apt to assume that the poor and the weak were to be blamed rather than to be pitied for their misfortunes. Impressed with the folly of those who tried to bolster up economic arrangements which the stream of progress had undermined, they were apt to think that nothing more was wanted than to make competition perfectly free and to let the strongest have their way. They glorified individuality of character, and they were in no hurry to find a modern substitute for the social and industrial bonds which had kept men together in earlier times. Meanwhile, misfortune had reduced the total net income of the people of England. In 1820, a tenth of it was absorbed in paying the mere interest on the national debt. The goods that were cheapened by the new inventions were chiefly manufactured commodities of which the working men were but a small consumer. As England had then almost a monopoly of manufacturers, he might indeed have got his food cheaply if manufacturers had been allowed to change their wares freely for corn grown abroad. But this was prohibited by the landlords who ruled in Parliament. The laborers' wages, so far as they were spent on ordinary food, were the equivalent of what his labor would produce on the very poor soil which was forced into cultivation to eke out the insufficient supplies raised from the richer grounds. 
he had to sell his labor in a market in which the forces of supply and demand would have given him a poor pittance even if they had worked freely. But he had not the full advantage of economic freedom. He had no efficient union with his fellows. He had neither the knowledge of the market nor the power of holding out for a reserve price, which the seller of commodities has, and he was urged on to work and to let his family work during long hours and under unhealthy conditions. This reacted on the efficiency of the working population, and therefore on the net value of their work, and therefore it kept down their wages. The employment of very young children for long hours was no new thing. It had been common in Norwich and elsewhere, even in the seventeenth century. But the moral and physical misery and disease caused by excessive work under bad conditions reached their highest point among the factory population in the first quarter of the century. They diminished slowly during the second quarter, and more rapidly since then. After the workmen had recognized the folly of attempts to revive the old rules regulating industry, there was no longer any wish to curtail the freedom of enterprise. The sufferings of the English people at their worst were never comparable to those which had been caused by the want of freedom in France before the Revolution, and it was argued that, had it not been for the strength which England derived from her new industries, she would probably have succumbed to a foreign military despotism, as the free cities had done before her. Small as her population was, she at times bore almost alone the burden of war against a conqueror in control of nearly all the resources of the continent, and at other times subsidized larger but poorer countries in the struggle against him. Rightly or wrongly, it was thought at the time that Europe might have fallen permanently under the dominion of France, as she had fallen in an earlier age under that of Rome had not the free energy of English industries supplied the sinews of war against the common foe. Little was therefore heard in complaint against the excess of free enterprise, but much against that limitation of it, which prevented Englishmen from obtaining food from abroad in return for the manufacturers which they could now so easily produce. And even trade unions, which were then beginning that brilliant though checkered career which has been more full of interest and instruction than almost anything else in English history, passed into the phase of seeking little from authority except to be left alone. They had learnt by bitter experience the folly of attempting to enforce the old rules by which government had directed the course of industry and they had as yet got no far-reaching views as to the regulation of trade by their own action. Their chief anxiety was to increase their own economic freedom by the removal of the laws against combinations of workmen. Section 16 It has been left for our own generation to perceive all the evils which arose from the suddenness of this increase of economic freedom. Now first are we getting to understand the extent to which the capitalist employer, untrained to his new duties, was tempted to subordinate the well-being of his workpeople to his own desire for gain. Now first are we learning the importance of insisting that the rich have duties as well as rights in their individual and in their collective capacity. Now first is the economic problem of the new age showing itself to us as it really is. 
This is partly due to a wider knowledge and a growing earnestness. But however wise and virtuous our grandfathers had been, they could not have seen things as we do, for they were hurried along by urgent necessities and terrible disasters. We must judge ourselves by a severer standard, for though England has recently been called on to struggle once more for national existence, her powers of production have been immensely increased. Free trade and the growth of steam communication have enabled a largely increased population to obtain sufficient supplies of food on easy terms. The average money income of the people has more than doubled, while the price of almost all important commodities except animal food and house room has fallen by one half or even further. It is true that even now, if wealth were distributed equally, the total production of the country would only suffice to provide necessaries and the more urgent comforts for the people, and that, as things are, many have barely the necessaries of life. But the nation has grown in wealth, in health, in education, and in morality, and we are no longer compelled to subordinate almost every other consideration to the need of increasing the total produce of industry. In particular, this increased prosperity has made us rich and strong enough to impose new restraints on free enterprise. Some temporary material loss being submitted to for the sake of a higher and ultimate greater gain. But these new restraints are different from the old. They are imposed not as a means of class domination, but with the purpose of defending the weak, and especially children and the mothers of children, in matters in which they are not able to use the forces of competition in their own defense. The aim is to devise, deliberately and promptly, remedies adapted to the quickly changing circumstances of modern industry, and thus to obtain the good, without the evil, of the old defense of the weak that in other ages was gradually evolved by custom. Even when industry remained almost unchanged in character for many generations together, custom was too slow in its growth and too blind to be able to apply pressure only when pressure was beneficial. And in this later stage, custom can do but little good and much harm. But by the aid of the telegraph and the printing press, of representative government and trade associations, it is possible for the people to think out for themselves the solution of their own problems. The growth of knowledge and self-reliance has given them that true self-controlling freedom, which enables them to impose of their own free will restraints on their own actions, and the problems of collective production, collective ownership, and collective consumption are entering on a new phase. Projects for great and sudden change are now, as ever, foredoomed to fail and to cause reaction. We cannot move safely if we move so fast that our new plans of life together outrun our instincts. It is true that human nature can be modified. New ideals, new opportunities, and new methods of action may, as history shows, alter it very much even in a few generations. And this change in human nature has perhaps never covered so wide an area and moved so fast as in the present generation. But still, it is a growth, and therefore gradual, and changes of our social organization must wait on it, and therefore they must be gradual too.
but though they wait on it, they may always keep a little in advance of it, promoting the growth of our higher social nature by giving it always some new and higher work to do, some practical ideal towards which to strive. Thus gradually we may attain to an order of social life, in which the common good overrules individual caprice, even more than it did in the early ages before the sway of individualism had begun. But unselfishness then will be the offspring of deliberate will, and though aided by instinct, individual freedom will then develop itself in collective freedom, a happy contrast to the old order of life in which individual slavery to custom caused collective slavery and stagnation, broken only by the caprice of despotism or the caprice of revolution. Section 17 We have been looking at this movement from the British point of view, but other nations are hastening in the same direction. America faces new practical difficulties, with such intrepidity and directness that she has already attained leadership in some economic affairs. She supplies many of the most instructive instances of the latest economic tendencies of the age, such as the development of speculation and trade combination in every form, and she will probably before long take the chief part in pioneering the way for the rest of the world. Australia also shows signs of vigor, and she has indeed some advantage over the United States in the greater homogeneity of her people. For though the Australians, and nearly the same may be said of the Canadians, come from many lands, and thus stimulate one another to thought and enterprise by a variety of their experiences and their habits of thought, yet nearly all of them belong to one race, and the development of social institutions can proceed in some respects more easily and faster than if they had to be adjusted to the capacities and temperaments, the tastes, and the wants of people who have had little affinity with one another. On the continent, the powers of obtaining important results by free association is less than in English-speaking countries, and in consequence there is less resource and less thoroughness in dealing with industrial problems. But their treatment is not quite the same in any two nations, and there is something characteristic and instructive in the methods adopted by each of them particularly in relation to the sphere of governmental action. In this matter, Germany is taking the lead. It has been a great gain to her that her manufacturing industries developed later than those of England, and she has been able to profit by England's experience and to avoid many of her mistakes. In Germany, an especially large part of the best intellect in the nation seeks for employment under government and there is probably no other government which contains within itself so much trained ability of the highest order. On the other hand, the energy, the originality, and the daring which make the best men of business in England and America have but recently been fully developed in Germany, while the German people have a great faculty for obedience. They thus differ from the English, whose strength of will makes them capable of thorough discipline when strong occasion arises but who are not naturally docile. The control of industry by government is seen in its best and most attractive forms in Germany. And at the same time, the special virtues of private industry, its vigor, its elasticity, and its resource are beginning to be seen in full development there. In consequence, the problems of the economic functions of government 
have been studied in Germany with great care, and with results that may be very instructive to English-speaking people, provided they recollect that the arrangements best suited for the German character are perhaps not quite the best for them, since they could not, if they would, rival the Germans in their steadfast docility, and in their easy contentment with inexpensive kinds of food, clothing, house-room, and amusements. And Germany contains a larger number than any other country of the most cultivated members of that wonderful race who have been leaders of the world in intensity of religious feeling and in keenness of business speculation. In every country, but especially in Germany, much of what is most brilliant and suggestive in economic practice and in economic thought is of Jewish origin. And in particular to German Jews, we owe many daring speculations as to the conflicts of interests between the individual and society, and as to their ultimate economic causes and their possible socialistic remedies. But we are trenching on a subject of Appendix B. Here we have seen how recent is the growth of economic freedom, and how new is the substance of the problem with which economic science has now to deal. We have next to inquire how the form of that problem has been fashioned by the progress of events and the personal peculiarities of great thinkers. End of Appendix A, Sections 9 through 17. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman.